I'm going back and screenshotting every single large prediction that I can from any of these media outlets <laughs> and just seeing how badly they screw up and they're wrong. You remember that. And I can't, I, I can't wait to unleash my treasure trove when all this is over. Yeah, keep your receipts. Keep your receipts. Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM every Saturday, 10 a.m. Eastern. ConsumerChoiceCenter.org is our website. You can also go over to ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. We've got all of our previous guests. We've got all of our previous interviews, show notes, anything else you'd like to see. I'm one half of your hosting duo, Yael Ososki. Broadcast you now from Vienna, Austria. It's great to be on the airwaves, and I'm joined as always by my colleague, who's uh, he's freezing and uh, he's putting on many jackets. David Clement over there in Toronto. David, how goes it? Oh, it's good. It's getting cold. It's getting cold. Uh, lots of debate about whether or not we actually have Halloween, and we let kids trick or treat. Um, so that's been a, a big discussion. I assume that's probably been the same throughout the U.S. as well. And we're probably going to close uh, close restaurants and gyms soon. So, um, yeah, not great. But uh, other than that, things are good. <laughs> yes, and of course, people are, are out wearing their masks, but not their Halloween masks. They're wearing their pandemic masks. And this uh, continues on. Uh, I just saw the news, David, um, and we've got a, a, an interview that we'll get to later with Danielle Butcher of the American Conservation Coalition, all about markets and environmentalism and actually how conservative ideas uh, can work to protect the environment. So very interesting interview with her we'll have later in the program, so please do follow up on that. One article on the, uh, the mask stuff, David, I just saw this. Uh, turns out Dr. Fauci... Uh, has come out and now is recommending a national mask mandate. Uh, okay. So this was part of... Is that constitutional? Uh, so this is the thing about medical experts. Uh, the Constitution is not by which they govern. Uh, so this was obviously mentioned a little bit by the Biden campaign and the Biden folks. Uh, you didn't really see them hamper on this. It was this kind of strange thing where we're going to highly recommend, but now Fauci has come out and said we just need the mandate. We need it to be federal law that you all got to be masked at all times. Yeah, but the problem is, is then you have the issue. I mean, first off, I think it's important. I think people should be wearing masks. I think the evidence suggests that it can uh, slow the spread of the virus. And anecdotally, in terms of countries like Taiwan, it certainly seems to be a major factor in slowing the spread of the virus. But that being said, I'm not really sure how feasible a federal mandate is um, on a couple of grounds. One is who's enforcing the law. So if a state governor decides that he's against the, ma- the federal mask mandate and orders state and local police to not enforce the law, then who, who are they gonna have to actually enforce the law? Two, 
do you really want to enforce the law, um, given the ugliness that has gone on in terms of interactions with police um, in the United States? Is Do we want to create another situation where we have people being confronted and having an engagement with the police over something? Um, I don't know. Yeah. And then three, is it easier just to have private businesses sort this out for themselves? Is it easier for Walmart to have a security guard in the front and be like, hey, hey, bud, you have to have a mask. And then they go, oh, okay, well, I can't go in if I don't have a mask. Yeah. That that to me seems probably the more reasonable route. Um, and it adds another, it adds a layer in between not wearing a mask and having a confrontation confrontation with the police because uh, it allows for that security guard or whatever the private business's situation is to figure it out first. This is such a conversation that is culturally unique to the United States because in so many other countries, they just like put in mask mandates and there was no discussion of the kinds of questions that you asked. Like who enforces this? Uh, do we actually want to be empowering police to be doing this? And what's the role of private business? And are we going to now have everybody you know, sneaking on each other and telling on others if people aren't wearing the mask? Again, we don't need to uh, relitigate this. You can actually go back and listen. I think it's got to be episode five, David, uh, that we did of Consumer Choice Radio. They're on consumerchoiceradio.com. It was called To Mask or Not To Mask. Uh, it'd be interesting to go back and listen, but I think we we kind of read over some of the articles and studies about masks at the beginning and some of, of the debate even before uh, they were really, I think, mandatory anywhere in the U.S., certainly, but they were, in that point, very mm -hmm. uh, much in force in different parts of Asia, certainly in, in different European countries. Yeah, don't yep. want to re relitigate this, but uh, something that, that's brought up. And, of course, yep. we do have a big election in just a few days. David, have you heard of this election? Has it been consuming your, uh, your news feed, your television, your computer? Uh, have you heard people talking about this near you? I will say that it is consuming my day and my I, I'm growing less and less confident with my prediction with each passing day. Oh lord. I'm getting a little oh, more no. uncomfortable. Getting a little more uncomfortable. Um basically been listening to a lot of people talk about all Trump needs to do so. The big thing is people forget. Well, that well let's won. let's let's back up. So give us your yeah. your early prediction, and uh, just so we have it on the record here on Consumer Choice Radio in this episode, it'll just be interesting to go back and listen. Yes. Okay. So my prediction was that Joe Biden is going to win. Um, I had it being much closer than I think most people uh, would suggest. Um, it'll actually just take me one second. To oh, pull you're pulling up, up your electoral map. Yeah, I want to get an actual. Yeah, so I had 279 to. Hold on one second. 279. Oh, so you have Biden just going over the mark. Okay. Yeah, so I have Biden at, at 279 to win. That's um, actually so that's, that, him, that's a that's like not a triumphant victory. That's like just over the finish line. That's just barely. So that's, um, I would say you're, you're a bit you're very modest with that uh, prediction and not like it's a Biden blowout. Oh no. Yeah. I don't think that it's a Biden blowout. I don't think that Texas is going to be close, which some people are saying, I think that's silly. Um, 
These are, so, yeah, these are New York and D.C. people who've been to Austin twice, and it's like, yeah, man, it's really changing down there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and so, I mean, that was my original prediction. I made that, um, I think, in March. And I still think it could be right. I think it could could pan out to be pretty much exactly that with Biden in the 279 category. But the flip side of that is that it's very easy for Trump to be in the 279 category. And so all Trump needs to do is hold Arizona, Florida, this state of North Carolina, and then take Pennsylvania and it's over. He can lose Wisconsin. He can lose Michigan. He has enough of a cushion from the last election to actually lose those two states and win. And so um, that's, I think, the real, that's the, the nervous part for me. It's like, well, I mean, people are saying that Arizona is, is really close uh, and that it could go Biden's way. That actually could happen. Um, I don't see Florida, I think, is going to go to Trump. Georgia is going to go to Trump. I think North Carolina is going to go to Trump. So it really will come down to the Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, maybe Minnesota. Um, and I mean, I think all bets are off there. I think they're, 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 I think things are going to increasingly tighten between now and Tuesday. And it will largely come down to the gamesmanship of did the Democrats get enough turnout in advance voting to carry the fact that they're obviously going to lose on day of voting um, for people who are more comfortable voting in person. And most of the polls and preferences kind of show that, that, um, that Republicans are far more likely to actually vote in person. And so I, I, I haven't seen any of the internal numbers, obviously, but the real question is, have they, have they beaten the Republicans badly enough in advance voting to, to carry whatever their loss is on actual election day? Um, so we don't know. So uh, I, have, it's, it's, I have not made the map uh, like you have, so I haven't uh, sort of gone and, and looked it out, but knowing the, the way that thing, the winds blow in North Carolina and the South and in Florida and Arizona, I say it is still Trump's game. I think the specific states that you mentioned and the switching and apparently Michigan and in, in pretty much all predictions is uh, steadily in the Biden corner. I don't know. I'd be very, I don't know, that's kind of suspect. We'll see. But there, there's the consensus. I think it's the 270to.win.com website is one. Uh, their consensus is Biden, 290, Trump, 163. It's like, okay, guys. And I'm seeing this everywhere. I'm taking as many screenshots as I can. And, of course, this is being broadcast on uh, Halloween, 31st. And I, I'm going back and screenshotting every single large prediction that I can from any of these media outlets and just seeing how badly <laughs> they screw up and they're wrong. And I can't remember I, that. I can't wait to unleash my Trevor, tro my treasure trove when all this is over. Um, but yeah, yeah. Keep your receipts. Keep your receipts. Yeah. And I, all right, I had two things on early voting I wanted to ask. So first, uh, let's stay with the Florida thing. Actually, Florida early voting. I saw for some reason they put out numbers, or they at least gave a prediction. And Republicans have actually had a huge. They actually had more people voting than Democrats overall. 
uh, in early voting, yep. which is strange and normally doesn't happen. And it was in some, it was in some key demographics for them. Yeah, it's like Miami Dade uh, County and all these areas. Yeah. So that's number one. Number yep. two, early voting. Uh, what did you call it? You call it something else? Anticipatory advanced voting. voting. Advanced voting. I like that. Yeah. Is that something that happens in Canada often or much? Yep. It, it so it does. Uh, you have advanced voting in person. Okay. So the I I don't know what the I mean. First off, in Canada, the elections are like uh, exponentially shorter than in the U.S. The whole entire I mean, the campaigns. Longest, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the longest election we've ever had here is like 90 days, I think, or just just a little longer. Um, so usually they're only about 35 days. Um, but two weeks out, I think it is, they'll have a couple days of advanced voting um, where you can go in person and vote in advance. There are ways to do mail-in voting. I've never done that. Um, I've done that in leadership races for parties. Yeah. Um, but I've never done it for any like actual formal election. Um, I think I might have done that in the Jack Layton election. I might have mailed okay. it in. Yeah. Okay. The reason yeah. the reason I ask, I just it's just crazy how big the voting window is now, and it's it's kind of insane. At least here in in, in Austria, they don't have this like big early voting thing. Um, it is a bit different in that whenever they're voting, it's usually always a weekend day so that people have off. Um, so it's usually a Sunday and, you know, people just go and vote and you're required to bring your ID, usually a passport uh, that would not pass mm -hmm. in the States, <laughs> but uh, it, they don't really have the, the larger advanced voting. And one thing that we're seeing and, and probably many of you have seen as well are, are these images of people early voting and they are standing in line for three or four hours I think that's a bit artificial. I mean, come on. Even in my uh, county and in my uh, electoral district where I'm voting in North Carolina, um, there's like eight places I can go to to go vote. And I'm pretty sure they don't have all these lines. I think it's a lot of the media stuff and whipping people up. People are going out and voting early like crazy. And we're probably going to see like the lowest ever actual voting on the day. <laughs> I don't know what that means yeah. for anything. It's just... It's just strange to, to kind of see that in action. And, of course, now voting is a very a performatory thing. Everyone's posting pictures, and you're going to see the I voted things, and people are going to be telling you uh, why you should vote. Um, not vote for the other guy. Uh, you should vote for their guy, obviously. <laughs> well, yeah, and some very famous people are have kind of flipped the script on encouraging people to vote. Um, so if you're a golf fan, Jack Nicholas is probably the greatest golfer of all time, released an image basically saying, yeah, it's, it's, it's your civic duty to vote. You should go out and vote. I voted. I proudly voted for Trump. Here's why I know him personally. I think he has our, our country's interests, um, at heart. Yeah, I don't like how he says things. And he's like, Tell, believe me, I've told him personally that I don't like the way that he says certain things. But this this election is about policies and how it impacts people, not about personalities. Hmm. And Twitter or Instagram, Twitter went nuts, <laughs> right? It went absolutely wild. And then you had a couple other celebrities do the same thing, like former Chicago Bears quarterback Jay Cutler basically did, did this he reposted that image and it's it's 
interesting because we see all of these celebrities with their kind of pro vote civic duty message, which is fine. I mean, that's, uh, that doesn't bother me at all. Um, but when kind of the other, when someone on the other side of the aisle does it, you can just see the meltdown happen. It's as if people think that if everyone voted naturally, Joe Biden would win. And it's like, that's not necessarily the case. But neither neither is it the fact that if everyone voted, we'd have some more perfect result. I mean, yeah, everyone, if, yeah, everyone that's knows, very true. Everyone knows that, you know, or at least everyone knows. People who have studied this know that there's no such thing as a rational voter. People are going to vote for certain people because of something they heard on the radio or just their feeling or not everyone is going to take the logical step flowchart map you have in your room about why you're voting for Biden or Trump, and no one's going to impose that. You know, this is a very small number of, of very partisan politicos who actually do that. Most people, it's a feeling. It's like a clip they heard. Uh, maybe it's like just their social circle. I don't know. There's so much I mean, that goes into this, and hopefully a lot more studies will be done afterwards that we can read about. Yeah, I took a course in university that t that looked at this on like vote preference and what like switches people one way or the other. Sometimes it can be really silly things. People can be naturally drawn to red over blue. People can see that their neighbor that they don't particularly like has a sign and be like, oh, well, my neighbor sucks and he's voting for Trump. So I'm not going to vote for Trump or vice versa. So there's all sorts of crazy reasons. Why or it could be it. because somebody strapped their dog to their car. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Going back to going back to Mitt Romney. Yeah. Oh, what we would do for Mitt Romney right now. Yeah, that's true. And we'll, we'll probably hear from him a little bit more. I think he'll probably be one of the most interviewed guys uh, after the election. And you'll hear a lot. It's big issues. You know, it's a big election. A lot of stuff that's very important to what we do here at the Consumer Choice Center and here on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, we're going to cover some of those. And we need some good, inspirational young people who are willing to change things. And uh, luckily, that's why we have one with us. We have Danielle Butcher from the American Conservation Coalition, not your ordinary campaign and activist group. Uh, they are actually market-focused, free-market environmental campaigners. Uh, so they actually believe that the way to fight any kind of issues in the environmental realm or area or with climate change is actually to use markets. So a uh, fascinating interview. David, can you just uh, get uh, get Jamie to sum, sum it up? By the way, Jamie on uh, Joe Rogan had COVID for a while. I don't know if you saw that. Ooh, that sucks. Yeah, it took him that out. So, Our Jamie is healthy, so all right, good. no get worries it. there. All right, yeah, Jamie, let's uh, let's play that interview. Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, we're back with another exciting interview here in the last couple of days of the election. I know that we've uh, talked a little bit about this, uh, let's say, in the past few months that we've been on the radio, but we wanted to think about ways that we could discuss the environment in a very critical and also effective manner using all the political uh, sort of jargon of the day, but somehow finding effective leaders who are doing that. And that's why we wanted to bring on Danielle Butcher, who's with us. She's from the American Conservation Coalition. Danielle, thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. Hello, thanks so much for having me. 
So uh, there's a lot of things that we normally discuss on this radio when it um, sort of comes to consumers and how they're affected by certain governmental policies or propositions or things that people are putting together. Um, the environment is one in which we're seen to be very reactive. Uh, you know, it's just sort of there's there's something that comes forward from Senate Democrats or House Democrats or something from some NGO. And we don't really have a sort of positive uh, pro-consumer, pro-innovation message. And it seems as if that's exactly what your group is doing. So you could could you tell us a little bit about that and everything that the ACC is up to? Yeah, absolutely. I think that for a long time, the environment is an issue that's had this sort of stigma for being more of a left-wing issue. And it's been certainly dominated by those types of values of you know, central control and having big government kind of regulate and make sure because it knows what's best for the environment and for the land. And there's really been no right of center message on how we could steward the environment, which is a shame because the environment is an issue that I think everyone on both sides of the aisle can care about. And it's an issue that conservative values also apply to very well, as well as libertarian values. And so what ACC is doing is we were um, a group of college kids who were in the right of center movement. We cared about the environment and we didn't feel like we were represented by any organization because uh, this is a huge issue to young people and there was no group tackling it. So we formed our own group and now we're out there providing, you know, right of center solutions and showing how values like property rights or innovation, competition can actually help the environment more than the status quo and than what we've been seeing over the last couple decades. And, and so what has been the response? I mean, obviously what you guys do is, is unique. What has been the response when you're either talking to, let's say, traditionally conservative folks, or you're talking to people um, who are maybe left-wing environmentalists? How's the group perceived? I'm sure you, I'm sure you have a lot of people scratching their heads um, <laughs> based on the, the, the overall narrative on the, of the environment. I think cer certainly people are surprised to hear that we exist, but I think they're also really excited because this is um, a mark or a gap in the market, if you will, because this is something that, like I said, all Americans care about the environment. It doesn't matter who you are, left of center, right of center, uh, what religion you are, what background you come from. Everybody goes outside and enjoys the environment and wants clean air, wants clean water. And so I think a lot of people are glad to see that there's more representation on the right. And I think the leftist center is glad to see the right getting more involved. So we're speaking with Danielle Butcher here on Big Talker FM Consumer Choice Radio from the American Conservation Coalition. Danielle, one thing that, uh, you know, obviously is on our minds, we're just a few days away from the election. Uh, there are many debates that happen. There's a lot of back and forth between candidates, between a lot of congressional candidates, uh, when it comes to uh, promises on the campaign trail or for the elections, were you satisfied with, with how the environment or environmental issues were discussed, or do you find that there was a little bit lacking? I think there's definitely um, more to be desired from the conversations we've had on the presidential debate stage. Uh, it was interesting to me that climate change has been kind of the central tenet of environmental discussion for a very long time. It's definitely the biggest environmental concern that people are talking about right now. And you have Joe Biden, who's very much embraced clean, renewable energy sources. And you have President Trump, who has very much been in line with traditional energy sources, who for the very first time actually acknowledged that humans may have some sort of impact on the climate during the debate. What's interesting to me 
is that neither candidate has really championed nuclear energy, which is the largest source of zero emissions energy that we have. So that is something I would really love to see both of the candidates dive into. And what has been, in, uh, on nuclear energy in particular, what are you seeing in terms of the arguments against it? I'm, Yael and I have talked about nuclear energy previously on the show. Um, I think that it's a, a fantastic energy source if we care about consistency in the environment. But I also know that there are a lot of naysayers out there. Um, what, is, some, what are some of your responses to the people who are anti-nuclear energy? Yeah, I think when it comes to nuclear energy, it's simply an issue where we need to separate emotion from reason. I think there's this innate fear of nuclear energy that has kind of been perpetuated by um, like the Hollywood stereotype of a nuclear meltdown and the worst case scenario apocalypse type situation. And the reality is that's just not um, the way that nuclear works. We've only had three major nuclear incidences in 17,000 cumulative years of nuclear use, we're using nuclear energy across 33 countries in the world. We've had three major incidences. Uh, contrary to popular belief, it has not actually um, injured or harmed or even like killed as many people as um, some would have you believe. In fact, nuclear is the safest by the numbers source of energy that we have. More people die installing rooftop solar each year than have died from nuclear power. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more, uh, hopefully, that comes into the public debate about this, because we are in a new century. Uh, the idea that, you know, everything is going to be just oil and gas and solar and wind. I mean, we got to be a bit more creative there. Uh, so we're speaking with Danielle Butcher. She's the executive vice president at the American Conservation Coalition. And uh, Danielle, one thing that you guys are, I don't know if you're actually still on it, or you embarked at this kind of electric... Uh, election tour across the country. You know, I saw some of this. What, what is that about that you guys have been doing? Yeah, so this is a project I'm really, really excited about. We have about a, a week left of it. In, I want to say August, late August, our founder and president um, got into a Tesla X and we decided to drive around the country in a Tesla and make stops along the way, meeting with local leaders and innovators and entrepreneurs basically highlighting the climate solutions that they are spearheading and champions without government intervention. So uh, it's been a really inspiring road trip. We've gone all over the West, Midwest. We've been on the East Coast, down into the South, and now we're finishing up in the um, Southwest. So we've got about a week left. It's been super inspiring to just see these really niche solutions that you would never think of. So for example, during my portion of the trip, I joined Benji in the Midwest. And we went to a dairy farm um, where there was an anaerobic digester, which basically means they take the waste from dairy cows. So they take that and they compost it so that the, the compost can be used for crops and for gardening and just your everyday type compost needs. But then they also take the carbon from that and they turn it into liquid natural gas, which they can then use to power communities all over the country. I mean, the end product they said went to California, which is just incredible to me that we have the ability to do that. And no one even knows about that sort of thing. And one, uh, just to jump in, one thing about the, the energy stuff, are you also hearing from uh, international partners and groups? Uh, because I, I know that uh, much of this is, is very centered on the US, but really there's a lot of innovative solutions that are happening elsewhere. I know that when I was in Sweden, I got to drive a compressed natural gas car 
and it was the coolest thing I had ever seen. It was a dual tank. So it had, had gasoline, but it also had the compressed natural gas and that you can kind of switch between the two. Um, and that's something that apparently in Sweden is pretty, pretty common and the same in Italy. Uh, what are some other sort of international uh, solutions that might actually be better than what is currently in our policy debate here in the United States? Yeah, well, I, I think what's interesting is that it doesn't have to be based on policy, right? And that's kind of the point. So with the international aspect, what you can be looking at is what innovators in each country are doing, and they can then export that innovation to other countries. And so we've got that kind of free trade competition of ideas going on, which is what you know motivates us to do better on this fight against climate change. Um, one example I'll use is I know in Australia, there's um, this invention called the sea bin, which is basically a bucket that floats in the ocean and it collects the trash. And then when it's full, you go out and you dump the bucket. And that is not you know, a product of government intervention. That is, this guy was a surfer and he was sick of seeing trash on the beach. It's those types of inventions that I think are ultimately going to make the difference because the market is much more efficient than government ever could be. And it responds to things much faster. Government is very bureaucratic. It's very slow. Things get caught up in gridlock. We can't wait for the government to act on climate change or environmental issues. We need to just be doing it ourselves. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point in terms of waiting for the government to solve a particular problem. Um, that, I mean, that kind of clamps us down in almost every policy area, but it's especially true for for climate change. Um, on that note of kind of alternative ways of extracting resources, one issue that I'd love to hear your take on is fracking, because obviously that was a big one in the presidential debate. Um, is Joe Biden going to ban fracking? Should he ban fracking? All sorts of questions uh, about the efficacy of fracking. Uh, are you able to highlight that debate for our listeners and maybe provide some of your insight on that one as well? I would be happy to. So Joe Biden has been very, very careful to toe the line on fracking. His running mate, Kamala Harris, has openly stated many times that if she were in charge, she would ban fracking. Joe seems to kind of go back and forth on it. And, you know, he's trying to clear the record, which is creating more confusion because at one point he said this and then he said that. Uh, I, I think he's trying to avoid taking a hard stance because he's trying to win in swing states like Pennsylvania. Now, from an electoral perspective, I suppose that makes sense. From a climate perspective, uh, my organization uses an all of the above energy approach. And what that means is we're supportive of all energy forms where it makes sense, right? So solar energy isn't going to make sense everywhere. Wind energy isn't going to make sense everywhere. And for us, the biggest part of fighting climate change is reducing emissions. If you care about fighting climate change, reducing emissions should be your number one priority. The fact of the matter is natural gas is how we have reduced our emissions so dramatically. In fact, we have reduced our emissions um, more than the next 10 countries combined over the next 12 years. So, I mean, we really have a lot to um, thank natural gas for, and we need to continue using it to continue reducing emissions because, you know, you may not like it. That may not be the answer that sounds nice and pretty, but it's the truth. So, you know, I, I would say that fracking needs to continue being a part of our energy portfolio. So, Danielle, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has the Green New Deal and you guys at the American Conservation Coalition have the American Climate Contract. 
So if I was myself, uh, let's say a supporter of your organization, or I was someone who is environmentally conscious, or I was a legislator who might be in Washington State or North Carolina or Virginia, and I want to focus on the environment from a conservative perspective, why would I sign the American climate contract rather than, uh, I guess, just following with my the, uh, the Democratic colleagues and go with the Green New Deal? Mm -hmm. The American climate contract is not necessarily a piece of policy, rather it's a framework through which we can address climate change. So it's not saying the government must mandate X, Y, or Z. It's saying here are four pillars that we could use to tackle climate change. So that includes 21st century infrastructure, uh, that includes natural solutions, energy innovation, and of course global leadership. So we believe that through those four pillars, we can find a lot of the solutions to climate change. What the Green New Deal does is, first of all, it's a non-binding resolution. So it doesn't actually do anything. It's basically just like a marketing tool. But in theory, what it would do is say, okay, these are the very specific policies and goals and regulations that we are going to set. If we get there, we get there. If we don't, you know, whatever. Because we, what we've seen with the Green New Deal is it has these really ambitious goals but there's not actually a path to get to those goals under the Green New Deal, right? So it says, okay, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030, but we're only going to use wind and solar. But how? Because that the math doesn't add up there. And so what I would say is the Green New Deal for you know progressives works really well as a marketing tool, as a message, as a statement. It does not work as a policy. And I would even argue that because it is so outrageous and ambitious, it actually delays action because we spend more time arguing over the Green New Deal than we do pursuing actual climate solutions. And, and so on, on that note of the Green New Deal, just to kind of dip back into the presidential election a little bit, because it wouldn't be talk radio without talking about that. Um, how different is Vice President Biden's green plan from the Green New Deal? Because I know a lot of the back and forth was, well, it's essentially the same thing. And, and Biden would say, well, no, it isn't. And there was all sorts of, um, I guess, engagement on that and disagreement on that. Um, is, is the assessment that they're more or less the same thing accurate? Or does, does Biden actually present some solutions that are maybe a little more realistic than what the Green New Dealers have proposed? I would say it's the Green New Deal light. Um, I think that like fracking, this is an issue area where Biden needs to toe a very careful line because he needs to bring along that centrist kind of moderate Democrat coalition that he personally has, but he also needs to like win over the progressives who are all in for Bernie or who are all in on the Green New Deal. And so, you know, he kind of has to do that lip service and say, okay, I'll concede on this point, but we're sticking with this. I'll concede on this. Uh, and so it, it's certainly not quite as bad as the Green New Deal, but I wouldn't go so far to say it's a good policy. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you're going to have too much debate on that point. Uh, we've been no. speaking with Danielle Butcher here of the American Conservation Coalition uh, here on Consumer Choice Radio on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. Danielle, where could our listeners or viewers, how can they follow your work? And what are you working on next that we can plug here on the radio? Absolutely. You can follow me on Twitter at Danny S. Butcher. You can follow my organization at ACC underscore national. And you know what? We're just plugging through this election and we're excited to get started on climate action, no matter whose administration it is. So that's our goal. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Danielle.
Thank you. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio on the Big Talker FM. Uh, Yael, a great interview, um, a topic that is important, I think, across the political spectrum in terms of uh, the environment, what we what we do, our, our impact on the environment. So great to hear uh, from someone who is proposing some, some market-based solutions to um, to climate change and, and everything that's going on. Yeah, I think for too long, I think much of the conversation or debate on this has been on a very strange axiom. Uh, so it's been basically about debating about whether X or Y is real or whether this percentage and temperature change. I mean, look, there are ways that we have to improve our environment and there are things we have to do to survive long term. And the best way to articulate that is with markets, with prices, with understanding the real true cost of some reforms. I mean, just talking about nuclear in 2020, uh, you know, that for some people it's it's verboten. Uh, you know, in uh, in Austria, here where I live, nuclear energy is banned. And many other areas, you have that, but it's actually a, a very good clean technology that people have been using very successfully for many years. Uh, you don't hear much talk about that, but and, I like any energy plan that is not a tax. We'll just say that. Yes. Yeah. And it's consistent. Yes. It, it, and nuclear energy is consistent. You can have you can have consistent flow um, because of nuclear, nuclear energy. It doesn't fall into some of the trap of renewables where it isn't consistent. And so you have a battery storage issue. Um, and on that note of taxes, this is actually one of, one of the best insights I've ever seen on the carbon tax, because there is a carbon tax that exists in Canada, and various governments will implement other regulations on emissions. And a lot of the time, people would kind of hum and haw over that, but I forget who it was. Some journalist basically said, hold on a second. The point of the carbon tax was that we didn't have to do all of this other stuff. It was one tax that 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 discouraged you from emitting. So why are we adding in all of these other regulations? Either the carbon tax is a sham and it doesn't work um, for a variety of reasons, or you're double dipping. And I thought that that was particularly insightful because, yeah, that's the point, right? It's the point is we have a carbon tax that discourages you from emitting that brings uh, emissions down. Well, that should be good enough. Every tax that's passed is always for one particular purpose. And obviously it just goes into the general fund and this is used for any other project. I mean, listeners in North Carolina, they know the North Carolina education lottery and any of these state lotteries, just total scams not because of the odds or because of the mechanics of the game, but just the fact that the government sets that up and they say this is all going to go to education when, in fact, the state has itself raided this uh, sort of education fund multiple times to fund other projects, whether it be Medicare yeah. or they got you know some kind of transportation stuff. 
So just like no bones about it, and you're right, David, when there's a, a carbon tax that's put on and then all of a sudden there's all these other things being banned or all these things that are being curbed or all of a sudden you're not allowed to drive on Sunday or your plastic bottles are banned, uh, there's kind of a lot of wackiness around this. Uh, I don't know if, if you have more insight. If there's Is there more of this wackery uh, that's happening here up north with uh, some things like plastic? Yes. Yeah, actually, I wrote about this. The the Trudeau government has uh, made a move to basically reclassify plastic as toxic um, under the environment protection regulations. And so, yeah, but that's okay. Uh, that makes sense, though, because you shouldn't eat plastic. Right, David? Is that what this is about? Or why, <laughs> why would they make this declaration? So they make this declaration because it makes it easier to regulate um to create policy around plastics. So they, they, they basically turned it into a schedule one toxin. Uh, Are you telling me they're manipulating the science <laughs> to achieve a policy end? Is that okay? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a very good way to put it. Um, yeah. And, and so I wrote an article for the financial post just explaining like, well, yes, plastic can be toxic if, we take our plastic and we dump it into our water systems. Uh, but plastic that is disposed of properly, uh, whether it's good landfill management, recycling, or my favorite, which is what Sweden does, incineration, um, it isn't toxic at all. And so declaring it toxic, regardless of how it's disposed, is a huge problem. Um, I think a huge overstep. And then they moved a ban grocery bags, six pack rings, stir sticks, straws, takeout containers made from styrofoam, plastic cutlery, all that jazz. Um, which, I mean, there's a couple problems. There's some problems in terms of externalities because the research on plastic bags shows that they're actually pretty environmentally friendly um, when you compare them to paper and cotton and things like that. Um, but it also just begs the question of priorities. I mean, we're in the middle of a, 100-year pandemic and the Trudeau government wants to ban plastic bags. It's like... And something that people okay. have been using more and more because, you know, it doesn't carry viruses or because it actually keeps us a bit safe and protected. Uh, I mean, the major grocery store chains for the first two months weren't letting you bring your own bags. They would not, <laughs> they, they would not let their cashiers put your groceries into your provided bag because... They don't know whether that's contaminated or not. And they don't want to have their staff be, have to carry extra risk. And so they were offering bags free of charge and you were getting all sorts of plastic bags. So it just seemed like a weird, such a weird timing to want to ban plastic bags. And it completely avoids the conversation of proper disposal. Um, so like, We've talked about this before. Most of marine plastic, um, most marine plastic comes from 10 rivers that are in the developing world. Uh, and that's mostly because they don't have proper disposal and they just bulldoze it into the river, or bulldoze it into the ocean, which is terrible. Uh, and critics of my article will be like, yeah, but we send some of our garbage to Indonesia um, and then it ends up in the rivers. And it's like, okay, well, let's stop sending it to Indonesia then. Yeah, it's simple that as that. Be, yeah, that would be an appropriate, like making us handle our own waste would be a proper policy response to the issue of 
marine waste 4,000 kilometers away. Um, banning these products here, it just seems like there are so many steps in between that could have been implemented before going to, okay, you're just not going to be able to have these anymore. Yeah, it's just a step too far. And, you know, there have been many states in the U.S. that have done this on styrofoam or single-use plastics, California, Massachusetts. I mean, you've got Rhode Island as well. You have many cities that banned styrofoam uh, takeout containers. And many of these places had to reverse their bans once everybody was ordering food and everybody realized in the beginning of the pandemic there's actually no better way to transport food from the restaurant to your house than with styrofoam containers or with these other containers. And when you limit the ability for people to procure particular products, not because it's a safety thing, but because of some concern about waste, you know, that doesn't make it more efficient. It just moves everybody to using something like cardboard, which is just thrown into the landfill and it takes you know, long to decompose and all this. There's all the kinds of stuff that goes into this. It's just, it's sad to see that it comes to this. You know, it's, it, this is like a back burner uh, ideological thing that is now thrust, you know, on particularly Canadians and many other people as well. Um, that's insanity. Can you, can you imagine being a restaurant owner? So let's say you're, you're, you own a shawarma place or some sort of fast food restaurant. And the pandemic has thrown a huge wrench in your ability to make money. You had to be closed for a while. You're open now, but still primarily people are taking takeout and, and meals to go. Um, so you're, you're dealing with the stress of basically trying to meet your payroll and stay afloat, pay rent. And then the government says, oh yeah, by the way, we're introducing this policy that's going to make your primary inputs for takeout more expensive because you're either going to have to switch to thicker plastic that doesn't count as single use, or you're going to have to completely pivot to things like cardboard or bamboo or all sorts of other uh, materials. Bamboo is terrible, by the way. I, with a child, we have these bamboo plates. Uh, these things, they go in the dishwasher like twice in their garbage and you have to throw it away you like they're, they're not like there's nothing you could do anymore and actually if you put a lot of hot water to wash it you know like you do they actually crack it bends yeah they crack yeah. they bend i mean it's terrible it's that, that stuff is is garbage but man no i i think you're totally right imagine uh i think if, if i'm gonna do another show thing i think it's episode 19 uh that we did called straw police about the D.C. straw police, where uh, they actually have a person who is from the, the city government there, and they go and check the restaurants. And if you are offering these uh, plastic straws, you get a fine. They got to be glass straws now. They have to be these terrible, mushy paper straws. I mean, again, this is just not the number one thing to focus on in the, in the middle of a pandemic. But, uh, but also, okay, let's if, be if you want to punch here. the restaurants in the face again and again, why not? But also, let's be serious here. Paper straws are the worst. They're garbage. They're the worst. They're the garbage. I, I hate paper straws. I think the the one the only the funniest thing I've ever seen the president do is when the Democrats announced that they wanted to ban single use plastics, which included straws. He started selling Trump twenty twenty straws on his website. Plastic <laughs> Trump twenty twenty. Smart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Paper straws. 
such they garbage. The they end up in your drink. They're all mushy. It's just then you got paper floating in your cup. Come on, this is this uh, is it not. Gets... It's not good consumer um, product. I'll tell you that right now. No, not an no, outstanding product. Isn't. Product. Yeah. All right, David. I got one other article I wanted to hit you with uh, before yeah, we, before we exit for the day. So this has to do with uh, what's happening in California, and we rage Ooh. about California a good amount. Uh, but they also have an important vote on Tuesday. And uh, I have seen a good number of people on social media that have been posting their ballots. Uh, I thought that was illegal, but I guess not. Posting their ballots and you know showing the different uh, referenda, propositions that people are voting for. And one of them that we've discussed is uh, Prop 22. This is a uh, bill that would undo various parts of the anti-contractor AB5 law specifically when it comes to ride-sharing, basically allowing ride-share drivers, people like Uber and Lyft and any other company out there, uh, that they are able to be freelancers. They do not have to be an employee. Uh, We've talked about the advantages of that. There's a court ruling in which there were several Uber drivers who were trying to stop Uber from pushing uh, messages about Prop 22 in the app. Uh, so they actually were were suing uh, to not allow Uber to give them the the political messaging for the election. Uh, they didn't want that to Wait, happen. Yeah. The, what's the justification behind that? So I think it's a group of drivers um, who likely are affiliated with some kind of some kind of trade union or some type of yeah. of union, or maybe it's people who you know were once drivers three years ago. <laughs> And yeah. these are these, you know, these lawsuits that we talk about, you know, very insane most of the time and don't have a lot of standing. Uh, and this is an example. And the judge basically just rejected that as a San Francisco Superior Court judge uh, saying, like, look, there's there's no way that they broke the law. I mean, they're just trying to protect their business and they're sending you messages that you signed up for uh, a service that you get money for. Uh, so, yeah, sorry, <laughs> it's not going to work. So yeah. Prop 22, uh, definitely yes on Prop 22. Uh, we don't want any more of these terrible lawsuits, no doubt. But just the ability for people to make their own living, make their own job, not have to be an employee, uh, very important issue in the state of California. And the rumor is if this passes in California and you have a Biden administration, according to David's map, uh, that this is very much a framework for what it could be nationally. And there would be some kind of anti-contractor law that's set up nationally, which would actually ravage so many people's livelihoods. Again, yet another punch to the face of all the people trying to get work during the pandemic. Yeah, and and there's a great hypocrisy for a lot of these more progressive legislators in California. Because on, in, in one hand... Um, we're going to get a little controversial here. Oh, all right, everybody one, on, strap in. On one hand, these are the politicians who will rightly say something like sex work is work. They'll, they'll defend sex workers. Um, I'm fairly liberal on, on that issue. I think most of most consensual adult relations should be. Uh, but they'll say that they'll be like sex work is work. Okay, that's fine. But driving somebody to the airport for 10 bucks in a system that has protections for both the driver and the passenger isn't work? Are you kidding me? 
like how on earth is that even remotely consistent with um with your world worldview the, well they say the answer they do say it is work and that's why they should be 40 hour a week employees they get paid xy benefit and that those companies must must then claim on their taxes and everything else it can't just be a free contract where they can freely negotiate it has to be one that is set up specifically in employment law as an employee employer relationship yes yeah uh, but they don't argue that on the other on the uh, on the topic of sex work they'll they'll make the argument you just made uh, or, or the flip side of the argument you just made basically saying no leave people alone and they'll figure it out and so on one hand they're very hands-off and on the other hand they're very hands-on which just struck me as not making much sense yeah it's just bad uh, assumptions and uh, Lorena Gonzalez who's the assemblywoman who pushed AB5 and is is likely one of the biggest villains in all of political history. Uh, her, her point that she's always making is like, well, this is about dignity. And it's about, you know, when people go to work, they should, they should have, you know, enough to feed their families. It's like, well, everyone agrees with this. No one disagrees that people should, should work jobs where they make no money. The argument is not about that. The argument is about do people have the free will or the ability to contract on their own to make their own arrangements according to their schedules. Not everybody wants to be an employee. And yeah, sometimes it sucks being an employee. Sometimes it's great to feel empowered and have you know sort of your, your own streams of income. I mean, this is a self-starter Anglosphere idea, you know, innovation and entrepreneurship. That's what people believe in. And, and yeah, sometimes that means contracting, uh, with various companies to fill up your entire week. But, you know, that's called freedom. And that's what we should be able to do. Yeah. And I think what a lot of these legislators miss is the fact that there is no, uh, there are no other jobs outside of the gig economy where you can decide to work in a moment and start working immediately. So, if you are already signed up as an Uber driver, we get off the radio this morning and you say, oh, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to go work for a couple hours. No other jobs outside of the gig economy offer you that type of flexibility and that immediate access to earning potential. If you work at McDonald's and it's not your shift. You don't go you, you don't get to go in on you Saturday. Can't just like, show hey, up. Hey, Bill, let's uh, heat up the fryer. You're going to pay me for three hours of work, right? It's like, no, you're not scheduled today. Well, but I'm here. I'm ready. I'm willing. No, you got to wait till Monday. It's your shift. Um, it's the same thing with any other job where with the sharing economy, whether you're delivering food or you're, uh, I mean, everything from delivering food to the people who organize the scooters. Um, Do the charging. The scooter companies. Yeah. Um, there are so many ways for people to make money now. Prime now. Uh, it doesn't require you. Yeah, it, re it requires you to meet some safety requirements and all of those things if you're driving people and background checks, which is all fine and well. Uh, but there's no weird formal interview process. You just do the work. And, and yeah. I think the, the quicker that we can get people from wanting to work, working, the better. The, the fewer steps in, the, in between there, the better. Um, and that's what a lot of people miss with this 
kind of crusade against the sharing economy or the gig economy is that it's immediate income earning uh, capability in real time. Now, if we don't stop this in California, it's something that we could be discussing nationally. And I hope it doesn't come to that. So if you got any California friends, let them know yes on Prop 22. Let's keep it going. So David, closing moments of the radio program. Thanks to everyone for uh, listening up until now. Here's a here's a nice curveball. What is going to be your wackiest political prediction um, after the the ballots are cast and we get our results on election day, either so, uh, individual candidate or trend or whatever? Well, I'll just give you my overall prediction, which is 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 going to be quite wild. Um, so I think that this election will be incredibly close. I think that it will largely probably come down to Arizona and Pennsylvania. Uh, I think we won't know the the results uh, for Pennsylvania until Friday the 6th at the earliest. It might even be later terms, than that, yeah. It might even be later than that. Um, I think that the stock market, however you classify that, whether it's the S&P or the Dow, is going to take an absolute beating in that gray period. Time uh, to short. It, yeah, time to short. Because it did, actually, I listened to a good financial podcast and they had somebody on who was like, yeah, well, it, when, when it was Bush Gore, the stock market got absolutely torn up during all the uncertainty. Um, so not that I give financial advice, but that's this the is financial not advice. financial advice. <laughs> yes, I this is just my opinion. Please do not invest. Please do not short all your stocks based on my election prediction. Well, that's what David Clement uh, on Consumer Choice Radio told me to do. Okay, I yeah, like that. So, I like that. And and then I think that Biden will eventually win, but it will be very close, and I think it will be very ugly. Um, it will be very ugly in that gray period, and I don't. I I think that once. Um, once it is clear that Biden has win that has won, Trump will concede, and he will go. Uh, the, the idea that he's going to hold on and not give up power, and like, I think it was Slate was was publishing articles about like this is what they did in Belarus when democracy was threatened. This is what they did in in this other kind of for, former Soviet bloc. It's like guys, we're not there. No, that's hot garbage. Uh, I mean, yeah, come on, that's All not right. happening. I like that. Uh, I don't have a wacky one. But I would say to keep an eye on Arkansas, uh, there's actually only a Republican and a Libertarian on the ballot uh, for the Senate. So it's Tom Cotton versus, I believe it's Ricky Dale Harrington Jr., uh, yeah. who actually was like at 30 or 40% in the polls, which is pretty good when you're not a third party. Uh, so who knows what can happen. Uh, if, if Tom Cotton loses, I don't care any, about any other result in the election. It's a good result. That, yeah, that... It, the, the, the people who care for freedom and decency have won if Tom Cotton loses, regardless of who the president is. And we'll end with that. <laughs> and that does it for Consumer Choice Radio here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. And as always, if you are listening online through your favorite podcast app, we appreciate that. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast uh, and follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio. Uh, thanks again. <laughs> <laughs>